0: wanna kids. (laughs) I love to see the Iwana kids out and about, but uh, wouldn't you agree that God's good? Uh, You look around your life and you say, uh, uh, sometimes situations get a little hairy. Sometimes things aren't going as well as you'd uh, want them to go, but you look back and you say, wow, through that time, God really was good. Life seemed bad, but God is good. Life gets complicated sometimes, doesn't it? But God is good, even when life gets complicated, because we live in a complicated world, don't we? See, this morning we're gonna be talking about simplicity, but to get to simplicity, we gotta understand the thought process of something being complicated, and what better example than to talk about the IRS for a minute, okay? You wanna talk about complicated. I got to thinking, what's the most complicated thing I could think of? So, it's the IRS. I still haven't figured it all out, but I did do a little bit of, um, a little bit of research because, you know, You think income taxes should be simple. If you're a math person, I'm not, but they should still be simple because you say, well, your tax rate is X percent. You take how much you make, multiply it by the tax rate, and voila, You know there is how much income tax you owe. But no, that's not the way it works. I pulled up on the computer directly from the IRS website Form 1040, which, as you know, if you are an adult and you've done this very long, that is the Individual Income Tax Form. You know, you'd think it would need just a few lines, how much money you made, what your tax rate is, how much you paid, how much you owe or get back, whatever, you know? No, you got all the lines at the top that have all your personal information, and then there are 38 lines, 38 lines, and if line 21 is greater than line, you know, 12, you do th- whatever, so I thought, there's got to be some instructions. Well, sure enough, the next link down on the IRS page where the instructions For this 38-question form, I kid you not, if you've ever looked at it, the instruction book for Form 1040 is 256 pages long. Government efficiency at its best. And of course, then you may have other forms and schedules and this and that. That's why I pay somebody to do it, okay? Because it's just not worth the frustration. It's easy to say, though, that, well, that's the government. When you get the government involved, things get complicated. No, 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 no. When you get humans involved, things get complicated because we are complicated people, complicated even more by the fact that we live in a fallen world that is complicated by sin. But uh, we, have the, we have the ability, the strange ability, to overcomplicate the simplest of things. And, you know, that's one of the main messages One of the main points that Paul is making, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning, I should have already told you that. It's One of the first points that Paul's trying to make as he's writing to the church at Corinth that had all kinds of problems, and one of their problems is that they were overcomplicating one of the simplest things out there. Paul had established the Corinthian church, of course, if you know the history, he'd established it during his second missionary journey. And, of course, it's located there in Corinth, which was a major trade hub. It uh, was an entertainment capital of the region. They had a lot of the major sporting events of the day there at Corinth. Lots of people traveled to Corinth. Lots of people had moved in to Corinth. One scholar I read said it was a cosmopolitan population. And I thought, what in the world does that mean? just means that, you know, people live there from all over the world. It was kind of a mixed bag, the population was. And so as these cultures became more and more mixed at Corinth, all these different cultures and these different religions, things got a lot more complicated. And things got more and more morally corrupt. You know, even those who were really godless, the godless pagan society of the region, the greater region, they looked at the city of Corinth and said, Those people are grossly immoral. I mean, we're talking about the godless people said that the Corinthians were immoral. I could give you examples in present day, but we won't go there. You can think of them yourself. But that complicated things even more for the church. You know, in John 17, Jesus prayed that his disciples, that his church, his followers, would be in the world, but not of the world. It's a little complicated for the Corinthian believers, because they often had a difficult time separating uh, themselves from the morally corrupt world around them. They wanted to use human wisdom to try to form this separation, and Paul says, you really can't do that. In our text this morning, Paul reminds them there's one way to look at it. In essence, let me give you the sermon in a nutshell. He says, stop overcomplicating things. There's only one way to truly separate ourselves from the morally corrupt world around us. And unfortunately, the United States really getting not much better than Corinth. Thankfully, I was having a conversation with somebody recently said, we kind of live in a little bubble here, and in a lot of ways we do, even though things infiltrate our bubble. But there's one way, one simple way, to separate ourselves from a morally corrupt world, and that way is simply the gospel. The gospel's not complicated at all. Read with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, talking about when I came the first time, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the power of your word. And Father, this morning, I thank you for the simplicity of the gospel that saved lives in Paul's day, and it saves lives today. And it's not just the power to save lives, Father, but I pray that we'll see this morning that it is the simplicity of the gospel that gives us, those who claim you as Savior, it gives us the power to live the life that you want us to live. I pray that you'd help us to see what you want us to see this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to this morning as we jump directly into the text and we look at the simplicity of the gospel as Paul presents it here is that the gospel is direct. Paul doesn't beat around the bush, so to speak. If you look there in verses 1 and 2 again, he says, "'And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified.'" in the day and time in which Paul established the church at Corinth, which if you read the story about the missionary journey, had come from Athens, where, of course, there was just a a, a plethora of uh, the Greek philosophers and that. And Paul tried, if you go back and read in the book of Acts there, Paul tried to use the Greek philosopher's way to explain the gospel, and he didn't have that much success. He comes to Corinth and he says, enough with that. I'm going to preach just the plain gospel, there were these folks there uh, who would have been Greek philosophers. And these folks that that, uh, depended upon Greek philosophy in Corinth, they depended upon their wisdom and their human knowledge to explain things. If you couldn't explain it to them in a way that made sense from a human perspective, they were not interested in it. They try to see who could make the most clever argument. But Paul said, that's not the way I came. You see, he said, I didn't come with excellence of speech or wisdom. That, those phrase excellence of speech means high-sounding words or pompous speech. You know the type. Now, I don't, I don't look around the room and see anybody that I think aligns with this. If you do, don't point at them, okay? But you ever met somebody who they just tried to use more $5 words than probably even in the dictionary. It's like you made that word up. You know? You're not that smart. I used a word not long ago. And Mary said, I made it up. Esplanade. She said, that's not even a word. I, said, yeah, I pulled it up and it showed, it's, it's a word. Now I just used it. I wasn't trying to show off. It's just for some reason I used that word. But some people they try to sound smart. Some people, have you ever heard it said some people are educated beyond their intelligence? You know? That's kind of what we're dealing with with some of these Greek philosophers, and that's the way they would talk. They would just use so many big words. They try to explain things not with godly wisdom but with human wisdom. That word wisdom means specialized knowledge. But Paul said, that's not the way I came. Did you see there in verse 2? It's really the, the focus of What what we're looking at this morning and again uh, tonight, it's, it's the focus of everything here. He says, I determined not to know anything. Those pompous words, those are out the window. That specialized knowledge, that's out the window. The only thing I sought to know, Paul said, was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, what drew me to this passage of scripture today, for today, was the fact that just last week, We celebrated a risen Savior. We ought to celebrate a risen Savior every day, of course. But last week was the day of the year we set aside to celebrate the fact that Jesus walked out of that tomb, that he's alive. You know, I mean, Paul uh, tells us over, I believe it's in Romans chapter 8, he said that, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. We know that Jesus is alive, but Paul said, when I came to Corinth, I came seeking to only know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Why not Jesus Christ and him alive? Why not Jesus Christ and him uh, anything else? Why Jesus Christ and him crucified? There's a little confusion here that sets in when you start to translate the original Greek of Paul's letter to English. So, let me simplify the verse. What Paul's really saying, he's saying, I didn't come to you with a bunch of big words, specialized knowledge, you know. You don't need a seminary degree to figure out what I'm here to tell you. I came to teach you who Jesus was and what Jesus did. He said, that's the only thing I sought to know among you. I sought to know who Jesus is. And what Jesus did, Jesus Christ and him crucified. What do you mean who he is? He's Jesus, that's his name, Christ is his title. He said, I came so that you'd know Jesus was the promised Messiah. And not only is he the promised Messiah, you need to know that he was crucified. Not just that he was crucified, but that he was crucified in your place. That's just as true as as Paul writes it to the Corinthians, it's just as true there as it is true today. We don't need to know much of anything else or anything else other than who Jesus is and the fact he died in our place. Because, see, it's not just through the shed blood of Jesus that we're saved, but it's through remembering who Jesus is and remembering what Jesus did that it affects our lives every single day. The gospel's direct. The gospel doesn't take a lot of flowery words to explain it. Oh, how we need to remember who Jesus is and what Jesus did. We remember it in the simple verses like John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave us only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Understanding the simple message of the gospel is the only hope that you and I have for living the life he expects us to live. And it's a life that is marked by peace, by happiness, by joy that the world cannot explain and that the world cannot give. So let me reiterate, remembering Christ crucified does not mean we remember a dead Savior. Remembering Christ crucified means we remember that he died in our place. And that simple truth ought to affect affect the way we live. He died for us, so we ask the question, are we living for him? That's the direct simplicity of the gospel, but there's more. We could have stopped there, but you're paying me for more time, so we're going to keep going. Got a second point. Not only is the gospel direct, the gospel reveals something about us. Look at what Paul said in verse 3. He said, I was with you in weakness in fear, and in much trembling. Now, it is hard for me to picture the Apostle Paul knowing all that I know about him from reading the Scripture, reading about all of the things that he did, reading about the way he stood up to governmental leaders and to kings and everybody else. It is amazing to me to read that Paul said, I was weak, I was fearful, and I was trembling. And you say, well, all that we know about Paul and how bold of a preacher he was, maybe that means something else. That's what I thought, you know, maybe it means something else. So I looked it up, and you know what I found out it meant? It meant that he was weak, he was fearful, and he was trembling. It means exactly what it says. William Barclay, the Greek scholar, says this is what some people call the trembling anxiety to perform a duty. The trembling anxiety to perform a duty. Why would Paul, what was his duty? His duty was to share the gospel, to establish the church. Why would he have a trembling anxiety about that? It's not that he was scared of the Corinthians, although there were probably some scary Corinthians. There's some scary Columbia Countians and whatever you, you hanesful people call yourselves, And uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's a word, parishioners, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, um, I'm sure there's scary folks all around here. Paul wasn't scared of the Corinthians. His anxiety, so to speak, his trembling, his fear came from the fact that he understood the stakes of the message he was to present. Paul knew that the only hope for Corinth was the gospel. The only hope for Emerson, the only hope for Hainesville, the only hope for wherever you live is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that he was not as eloquent as those professional speakers who came in. And a lot of them were pushing other religions. Some of them may have been pushing a perverted gospel about Jesus, kind of like a lot of the televangelists do, you know, the name-it-and-claim-it type gospel. That was no doubt around then as well. But Paul knew he was competing against some very talented orators. And he knew the stakes were too high. He knew the message that he had to preach would run contrary to the beliefs of a lot of people in the community. He knew that there would be resistance. He knew that he had to get it right. Barclay goes on to say that the really effective preacher is the one whose heart beats faster while he's waiting to speak. I remember the night of my first sermon. I had surrendered to preach there at First Baptist Magnolia, and and, uh, that night, uh, there were actually, there that morning, there were two of us that surrendered to preach, and as we went to the back door, and Brother David got back back there, he said, "All right, one of you preach next Sunday night, and one of you the next." You know, well, the other guy claimed the one two weeks out first, <laughs> which meant that I had that very next week surrendered to preach, preach the next Sunday night. That next Sunday night, I went into Brother David's office before church. He was giving me the lapel mic and that kind of thing, and. We were sitting there talking, and I remember he asked me what I thought was just one of the strangest questions that I've ever been asked. He said, are you nervous? <laughs> you know? That's an obvious answer to that. I, yes, I was nervous. And he told me something that I'll never forget, something that I find to be true today. I'll paraphrase. I don't remember exactly the words he used, but he said, "Jeremy, I've been preaching all these years, and I still get nervous every Sunday morning before I step into the pulpit. Why? Because the message of the gospel carries such high stakes. It is such a powerful message into our teachers in the church, and those who teach our children and our adults. And all, this, guess what? It's okay." If you get nervous, it's okay if you're a little bit afraid, and you you really ought to be, because the book says that we're going to be judged more strictly, those who are teachers. And so we ought to be nervous that we get it right. The stakes are too high. Paul had that feeling. He knew there was nothing he could do to save the people. He knew there was nothing he could do to change their hearts and their lives. So let me ask you this. What's stopping you this morning from sharing the gospel with somebody this week? What stopped you this last week from sharing the gospel with somebody around you? You say, well, I was going to, but I just got nervous. I just got so nervous that I couldn't find the words. Well, Paul's already told us the words are simple. Jesus and him crucified, who he is and what he did. That's all you need to know. Paul said he was nervous. Paul, the bold apostle, said he was nervous. So I ask you, what's stopping you? Paul quashed that greatest fear. So I have a fear of public speaking. Well, then don't do it in public. Do it in private, you know? What's stopping you from signing the VBS sign-up sheet out here? You know, I've told this story before, and I'll tell it again. I had a little flair for the dramatic that day, I guess, but when we were in Fordyce um, one Sunday morning, there were very few that had signed up for Bible school. Now, we have several, but we have a lot of openings, and if that sheet fills up, we'll find a place for you. But I stood up on a Sunday morning and said, you can sit at home on the couch while these kids die and go to hell, or you can come tell them about Jesus at Bible school. There's so many people signed up, we had to find a place to put them. <laughs> but you know, that's, I might have had a little flair for the dramatic, but guess what? That's not far from the truth. What's stopping you? Tim hit a great point in Sunday school this morning. He said, you can't say I served my time. Let the younger people do it. No. If you're still breathing, God's got a place for you. What's stopping you from doing that? What's stopping you from signing up for Awana next year? What's stopping you from just this week sharing the gospel with a friend or family member? You say, well, I'm scared. Good. Paul was too. But see, here's the thing. Paul knew how inadequate he was to share the gospel. Paul knew he wasn't worthy to share the gospel. What do we know about the Apostle Paul? Over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who's enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Verse 13 says, although I was formerly a blasphemer, Persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent man. Paul quite literally went around killing people for professing the name of Jesus. But he said, but God found me faithful and put me in the ministry. What happened? Jesus happened. The gospel happened. If the gospel had the power to change Paul, it's got the power to change you, and it's got the power to change your friends and family and all those around us. Paul knew he wasn't worthy. I love what 2 Corinthians 4-7 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So what does that mean? It means God uses broken people to share the gospel so that that way when somebody's saved, that way when somebody's life is changed because a broken person shared the gospel, there's, you say, well, there's no way the broken person saved them. The power, it's proof positive that the power is from God. God uses broken people to, share, to spread the gospel to prove that the power is from him and not from us. The gospel reveals our human weaknesses so his power can be on display. The gospel's direct. The gospel shows our weakness. And one, for, one last thing that we've already started talking about because I tend to get ahead of myself. The last point is this. The gospel displays God's power. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Paul says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Did you see what he said his words were? He said they were not human wisdom. His words were a demonstration of the Spirit and the power of God. Translate to you what verse 4 says, I didn't teach Jesus to you by winning an argument. I just showed you the proof. You know, Paul didn't try to debate the unbelieving Corinthians. He tried that at Athens. Didn't work too well. Had a few converts, but he wasn't overly successful. Uh, William Barclay says that was probably the greatest failure the Apostle Paul ever had was when he tried to debate the philosophers at Athens. That's what he did at Corinth. He didn't try to debate them because he knew you'll never win an argument with an atheist. You may be right, but you'll never win the argument. You'll never win an argument with a Muslim. You'll never win an argument with a Jehovah's Witness. Trust me, I've tried. He used to knock on the door all the time in Magnolia. I don't know where I live down here, I guess, thankfully. Y'all don't tell them. You'll never win an argument with your unbelieving co-worker or with your unbelieving brother-in-law or your unbelieving neighbor or whoever the person might be because human wisdom cannot explain the mysteries of God. Ephesians 2.8 does not say, by grace you're saved through knowledge. It says, by grace you're saved through faith. So how does Paul say we point? The, he pointed the Corinthians to faith? How do we point other people to faith. He says there in verse 4, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that word demonstration means proof. What was Paul's proof? It was his life. You know the words we read just a minute ago in 1 Timothy about what a horrible, despicable person the apostle Paul was. But then Jesus changed his life. That was his proof. He could go to them and say, Look, this is documented. This is who I was. Now look at who I am now. And you say, Well, I don't have that kind of testimony. You know, you hear some powerful testimonies out there. Some of the most powerful testimonies I've ever heard are from the drug addicts or from the alcoholics or from those types of people, you know, who their life was destruction, but Jesus changed it. You know, and I don't have that kind of testimony. You know, and and it didn't hit me till I was an adult. I've got just as powerful of a testimony, though, because I might not have been an alcoholic or a drunk or anything else, but I was a sinner on the road to hell. But thanks to Jesus Christ, I'm not anymore. Thanks to Jesus Christ, He's got me pointed in the direction towards heaven. He's preparing a place for me there, as John chapter fourteen says. There's only one way that that happens. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what he says in John 14. Your story and my story are a lot different from Paul's. At least I hope yours is. As far as I know, nobody in here has been out killing Christians, okay? Our stories are different. I had a big, long list of sins prepared to read to you, To say, maybe you've done this or you've done that, but you know what you've done? You know what you've done. I know what I've done. You don't need me to read a list. When we live with a constant mind towards the fact that Jesus died on the cross, when we allow that message to penetrate our hearts, it changes our lives. And that big, long list of sins that we've done doesn't haunt us anymore. And that's the proof that we use to tell others about Jesus. The word says we're to let our light so shine before men that others see our good works and glorify the Father in heaven. Our lives are the proof of the power of the gospel. And did you know what Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1-8? He says, you'll be my witnesses. You know, a witness can only tell what he's personally experienced. Jesus didn't say, you go quote scripture to people. Jesus didn't say, you go out and you find you some sinners and you condemn them for their actions and make sure you post on Facebook about how terrible they are too. No, Jesus says, you don't reach people that way. Matter of fact, that'll turn them off. Jesus says we reach people by telling them and by showing them the proof of what he's done for us. The gospel is simple. There's no need to overcomplicate it. Jesus paid it all, the song says, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So I ask you, will you use what he's done in your life to impact the world around you this week? This week, will you make it a point in some way? Say, you know what? Yeah, it's nerve-wracking. Yeah, I'm I'm scared to do it, but it was nerve-wracking to Paul. And he was one of the most bold preachers that ever lived. I can share the gospel with somebody this week. This week, I I can tell somebody the good things God's done in my life. This week, will you let the message resonate in your own heart? Think about that song that Jake sung a little bit ago, God's been good. Boy, that'll change your outlook on the day. You're having a bad day, you're going through a bad couple of minutes, and it seems like then the whole day is bad, but then you think, no, no, no. Maybe a hard time right now, but God's good because of the gospel. This morning, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never experienced the power of the gospel. There's nothing more we'd love to see this morning than you to experience that. You don't have to walk this aisle. You can do it where you're at. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, as these kids up here told us just a little bit earlier, it says, if you profess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 13 says that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you can do it where you're at. You can do it from home if you're watching on the live stream. You can do it in your car. You can do it wherever. Call upon the name of the Lord. Tell him, I know I'm a sinner. And I know there's only one way for me to go to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. Ask him to save you this morning. And then would you tell us about it? Let us know so we can celebrate with you. I don't know what the Lord's laid on your heart this morning. But whatever he has, would you take care of that as we stand and sing?